Are the current moves in Lebanon and the Red Sea signs the war on Hamas is expanding to encompass Hezbollah, Yemen, and ultimately Iran as well? Will pressure from within the Jewish community or from the genocide case do anything to stop the violence from exploding into the largest regional war Israel has ever faced? Would Israel be contained in any way if the war in Gaza was judged to be in violation of the 1948 Genocide Convention? How does media coverage of claims of anti-Semitism in Canada and in Canadian pro-Palestine protests stack up to the unprecedented scale of bloodshed drowning two million people in Gaza? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we return to the Israel-Gaza war to get an update on the new developments seizing the region since October 7th and try to assess whether any efforts can stop the slaughter in Gaza and beyond. In our first half hour, lawyer, journalist and activist Dimitri Lascaris is back to discuss the larger situation causing Lebanon and Iran and the U.S. to be involved in Israel's private dispute. In our second half hour, two writers in California discuss their global research article alleging evidence and law in the current genocidal hearings against Israel at the International Court of Justice will be nothing more than window dressing in the outcome of the case. And finally, journalist Robert Inlakesh returns to the program to update us on what is known about people on the ground in Gaza and about crimes committed by Israel against Gaza citizens, including journalists. On this week's program, Israel anti-terrorism, the mother of all genocidal wars. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 12, 2024. This program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Settler population attained the vast assets of the land and waters based not on mutual respect, but fraudulent treaties and promises leaving the indigenous community cheated and experiencing the effects of colonialism and genocide. We can and should not only acknowledge this reality, but enter into a process of reparations and respectful partnership on this land. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. It wasn't Biden's administration that cooked up the novel legal theory under which Assange is charged. It was the Trump administration. The Obama administration, for which Biden served as the vice president for eight years, never charged Julian Assange with a crime. 
Is it that Biden fears that right-wing Republican Party members will call him soft on the cooked-up Trump-era, quote, non-state actor, unquote, legal theory of espionage? Surely the former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee can see through that smear attempt. It is long past time for U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to tell President Biden that the Trump charges against Assange that are the basis for the extradition request are without merit. That comes from the article, Biden is Trump's poodle on case of journalist Julian Assange and bogus espionage charges by Colonel Ann Wright, posted January 10th, originally published on Covert Action magazine. United Nations figures show that Israeli forces have killed twice as many women and children in Gaza in two months as Russian forces killed in Ukraine in more than two years. Satellite technology assessments of Israel's bombing of Gaza show a far greater intensity than in Ukraine, Syria, and in the World War II. According to the Euromed Human Rights Monitor, Israel dropped more than 25,000 tons of explosives in Gaza since October 7th, the equivalent to two nuclear bombs. Labor must think again. Abandon hypocrisy, strive for consistency, and make a contribution to humanity by supporting South Africa at the ICJ. That comes from the article, Australia must support South Africa's International Court of Justice case against Israel by Stuart Rees, posted January 10th, originally published on Green Left. Major General Patrick Ryder, a Pentagon spokesman, confirmed that U.S. forces carried out an airstrike in Baghdad, killing a military commander, but excused the killing because... Al-Saidi was backed by Iran. Iraqis in the streets promised revenge against the U.S. after the assassination. No American soldier shall stay in Iraq, one man yelled, firing his gun into the air. Besides the 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq, which were invited to Iraq initially, there are 900 U.S. troops in Syria illegally occupying the most productive oil wells in the Northeast. Now that the U.S.-supported genocide on Gaza has killed well over 20,000 Palestinians, local groups in Iraq and Syria have been attacking U.S. troops there in an effort to drive them out. That comes from the article, String of U.S. and Israeli Assassinations Further Inflame the Middle East by Stephen Swahini, Posted January 10th, originally published on Mideast Discourse. Then a strange thing happened to the New Zealand data. Not only did the above paper disappear, but the numbers of reported acute kidney injuries were cut nearly in half. Here is what the same table now shows from the same titled paper by the same authors since August 2023 at this link. Suddenly, from January to August 2023, the observed acute kidney injury, or AKI, events now are only 57% and 58%, respectively, of the originally reported AKI 
events. As a result, the data shown in August look like the Pfizer vaccine made no difference or even implied a slight benefit, whereas the data published seven months earlier had shown an alarming increase in acute kidney injuries post-vaccine. That comes from the article, New Zealand fudged the data on how the kidneys fare after the COVID vaccines by Dr. Colleen Huber, posted January 10th, originally published on The Defeat of COVID. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. So we are now joined by Dimitri Lascaris. He's an activist, a lawyer, a journalist, and uh, he was formerly a contender for the Green Party leadership, the Green Party of Canada. He was in the south of Lebanon uh, back in late October, and uh, he's since been active at talks and demonstrations, confronting politicians and, and doing everything he can to advance peace in the Middle East. And he's with us now to drive the point home with our listeners. Now, in uh, during our last interview, you said the following – Israel needs the United States in this fight, and the way to get the United States into this fight is to provoke a large-scale attack from Iran or an Iranian proxy. We are heading to a major, major war in the Middle East. Uh, Given everything that's taken place in the last two months, uh, have you had to revise this analysis in any way, or or or, or is it pretty much confirming that initial uh, reaction? Sadly, Michael, I think we are closer to a major conflagration in the Middle East, uh, quite possibly the biggest one we've ever experienced uh, than we were when you and I last spoke. We're much closer. Uh, You know, in that time, what has happened? Uh, Israel, uh, I'm not sure that Israel admitted it, but we all pretty much know who did it, uh, killed a senior Iranian general in Syria. Uh, Let's be very clear. Uh, whatever one may think of the Syrian government, whatever one may think of the Iranian government, uh, the government of Bashar al-Assad is the internationally recognized government of Syria. And as a sovereign state, Syria, its government has the right to invite onto its territory uh, military personnel from other countries. And uh, the Iranian general was there, by all accounts, uh, with the consent of the internationally recognized government, and the Israelis murdered the man. Uh, what, why would they do this? I mean, they're not obviously not going to, you know, killing one general isn't going to change the balance of power between Israel or, uh, Israel and Iran. It was done. I think the fairest interpretation as a provocation. Then they attacked, uh, they killed, uh, the deputy leader of Hamas political leader in, uh, a Southern uh, suburb of Beirut, which is the stronghold of Hezbollah. And they had been warned that if they did this, it would lead to an escalation. They killed him either with a missile strike from a a combat aircraft or from a drone. Uh, And by the way, they killed, uh, I think, some eight or nine other people, including some civilians in that strike. Uh, And then there was this attack in Iran. You know, it's killed, I believe, over 100 people. They appear to have been primarily civilians uh, at a commemoration for the the assassinated general, senior general of Iran, uh, Soleimani, who was you know, assassinated by the Trump administration. Now, uh, responsibility for that 
terrorist attack, and that's what it was, was claimed by ISIS. Now, whatever uh, you know, you or I may think about the claim that ISIS did it, I can't imagine that the Iranian government uh, isn't suspecting that somehow the uh, the Israelis or the Americans or both were involved or uh, provoked or committed this uh, heinous crime. Uh, so, and what matters for purposes of avoiding an escalation is not what you and I think, it's what they think. It's what the parties to a potential war think. And given how often, including the fact that one of their own generals was just assassinated in Syria, you know, the Iranian government is almost certainly suspecting that somehow the Americans and or the Israelis were involved in that terrorist attack. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the response to this, of course, has been an escalation. Uh, you know, there were daily attacks taking place from both sides of the border uh, in the north of Israel, the south of Lebanon uh, for, for three months now. But they have clearly uh, gone up in intensity and frequency. And Hezbollah has begin, begun to target military uh, installations in northern Israel that the uh, that they were not previously trying to strike. Very sensitive and important military installations yeah. Uh, yeah. from the Israeli perspective. So we're watching the escalation happen in real time. And I, you know, I could go on and on about what's happening in the Red Sea with the Houthis. Yes. There appears to be escalation there. You know, there was an attack by an Iranian militia uh, using a cruise missile on Haifa mm. for the first time. Uh, you know, and what we're watching is an escalation in real time. And unless and until they stop this genocide in Gaza, this will continue to escalate. Wow. Well, I, I, I can unpack all of those uh, points that you just talked about. I know you know, for example, uh, the exchanges with Lebanon that have opened up. And I, 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 are you saying you, you read this as the second front with Israel involving Hezbollah or, or could have... Could these assaults subside with time because, you know, differing you know, between Hezbollah and, you know, the other aspects of the Palestinian, the, the Lebanese population, you know, Christians and so forth? Well, uh, I think at this stage, I, one thing I think we can count on from Hezbollah is that if they feel that uh, they need to strike back harder than they have previously at the Israelis in order to maintain a level of deterrence, right. they will do it. They'll do it no matter what, because if they lose deterrence, they've experienced Israeli occupation before. They've experienced massive Israeli war crimes in the south of Lebanon and in Beirut before. And they, I think, are absolutely convinced, probably with some reason, that the only way uh, to stop the Israelis from repeating the invasions and the occupations and the murderous war crimes of the past is to make them pay a steep price for their uh, their attacks on targets within uh Within Lebanon, so I think that no matter what, as long as the Israelis keep escalating, the uh, the Hezbollah will respond correspondingly. However much you know, elements of the Lebanese population, with complete, you know, justification, want to avoid a devastating war. Uh, and at the end of the day, again, this can't be said often enough. The key to avoiding this war is stopping the carnage in Gaza. Everybody has said very clearly: if you stop killing Palestinians and you allow humanitarian aid to get in. We will stop firing at you. This has been said by the Houthis. It's been said by Hezbollah. It has been said by the militias in Syria and Iraq. And there's no reason to doubt that they're telling the truth. The U.S. 6th Fleet had announced that they were withdrawing the USS Gerald Ford, the, the world's largest warship from the Middle East. So that, that suggests, okay, maybe we should lighten up. Are, are we seeing a, a possibility of, uh, you know, like a double-sidedness on the part of the United States and Israel saying, hey, 
we, we need you in, in power? I mean, it's important to distinguish between what the Israeli government wants and what the U.S. government wants. Yeah. Right now, right up, up until this moment, I've been talking about what the Israeli government appears to want, and it appears very much that they want escalation. And there are two reasons, I think, for this. The one is they are, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily losing badly in Gaza, but they're taking steep, steep casualties. And there's really no indication that Hamas is on the verge of collapse after three months of genocidal attacks on the civilian population. Uh, and so they need a distraction. Netanyahu is seriously concerned, and he should be, that if he falls out of government, uh, the corruption prosec prosecutions against him will resume, and he will probably find himself in jail. How does he prolong his freedom? By prolonging war. Things aren't going well in Gaza. Uh, and so it, 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 it serves his own personal interests, and also the ideological orientation of people in his uh, cabinet uh, to escalate with Hezbollah. The other reason why Israel, I'm not talking about the United States, Israel wants to escalate with Hezbollah is because the large parts of the northern part of Israel have been evacuated. There are many tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Israelis who've said very clearly to the Israeli government, we're not going back there until you push Hezbollah away from the border. Uh, and uh, that is going to be a big blow to Israel economically, uh, militarily, and uh, in terms of its esteem and the image it wants to convey of providing security to its population. So they're anxious to push Hezbollah away from the border, and they can't do that with American support if they're seen by the world to be just outright launching a full-scale war. So what they're doing is they're calibrating their escalation. They don't want to be so escalatory that everybody sees that they started the conflict, but they have to push Hezbollah far enough so that it is provoked into committing, uh, you know, uh, to launching attack or an, an attack or attacks on Israel that are devastating. So that's what Israel, I think, wants. What the Americans want is, I think, a muddle, because you do have people speaking, people who are influential, like John Bolton, who are openly calling for an attack on Iraq, uh, on Iran, I should say, and would love nothing more to, than to see, you know, uh, South, South Lebanon and Beirut flattened for the purpose of uh, uh, trying to destroy Hezbollah. But then you have people in the administration who may be, I mean, I don't have any you know, clear insight into this, but I think there's another contingency within the administration, probably includes Lloyd Austin, uh, the Secretary of Defense, might include Anthony Blinken, maybe Jake Sullivan, who do not want a full-scale war, because, especially in an election year, because they think, uh, first of all, the United States is in no position to fight a, a full-scale war right now, and also that's very bad for the re-election prospects of Joe Biden, which are already looking quite grim. So I think you have this fight going on internally. And when that, uh, you know, that, that, that aircraft carrier group was sent back to the United States, uh, I think that that may have been a way of the Americans, or at least the faction within the U.S. government that doesn't want full-blown war, saying to the Israelis, you better scale back your attacks because we aren't prepared to commit a huge amount of our naval forces uh, for a full-blown full war. Uh, so it, that may have been, a, again, I'm, I'm having to speculate. I can't say for sure. I don't have a, you know, a, 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 a hotline to the White House, but this is the best interpretation that I can place on their behavior. I think there, there are people in the administration, powerful people who are trying to avoid a full-scale war. There are others who are openly calling for it. The U.S. right now, I think there's very terrible infighting in the Biden administration. But what the Israeli cabinet wants 
Oh, I think they'd love to see the U.S. go to war with them against Hezbollah and Iran. Well, half a million Israelis have uh, ha have left. You know, that's uh, that's uh, pretty sizable. And that then you also have to consider other things like the Houthi uh, attacks. Uh, I mean, in the Red Sea, that that's got to be fa affecting the trade routes as well. Within Israel, there's got to be some kind of uh, a contradiction between the Netanyahu government and much of the citizenry. Is that going to play in a way that's possibly favorable to the charge of of causing him to restrict his actions, or or is he? Are, are they pretty much uh, going nowhere in the face of an adamant, uh, unrelenting uh, prime minister? Well, you know. As I, you know, I say it again, the main cause of the tensions in the region and the violence in the region is the genocidal attacks on Palestinians, not just in Gaza, but primarily in Gaza. Right. Uh, and in that regard, all the polling indicates that the vast majority of the Israeli population, or at least the Jewish segment of the Israeli population, which is about 80% of the population, the vast majority of them are fully on board with the destruction of Gaza. In fact, a recent poll showed that a sizable percentage, I think it was 30 to 40 percent, thought that the IDF is not being forceful enough, yeah. that it should apply more force. So uh, I don't see at this stage, uh, it's tragic to say, and terrible. Uh, it's a terrible commentary on you know the attitudes of Israelis, uh, that there's any real impetus for uh, a cessation of the hostilities in Gaza amongst the population. Uh, when it comes to uh, you know, uh, views about the Israeli population with a war with Hezbollah and Iran. I haven't seen much in the way of polling in that regard, uh, but I think there you are more likely to find a division of opinion within Israeli society, uh, because I think a lot of Israelis understand that fighting a war against Hezbollah and Iran is a very different thing from fighting a war against Hamas. Uh, they understand that after the, the, the Israelis, you know, were effectively defeated in a 2006 war in South Lebanon, uh, they, and 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 since then, uh, the missile arsenal of Hamas has grown potentially by a factor of 10. Their missiles are more sophisticated than they were back then. Uh, I think a lot of Israelis understand that this is going to be a very painful war for Israel. So I'm not sure that there the government has anywhere near the level of support that it has for its destruction of Gaza. Mm. Well, that, that brings me to this uh, this call by the South African government uh, for you know urgent action to be taken uh, against Israel on the grounds that it's it's war with uh, the Gaza is is gen a genocidal war and he laid out all like a, an 84 page document on on December 29th that outlines their case they've got very high profile uh, lawyers uh, involved John Dugard I believe uh, all involved in 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 presenting this case. So I, you yourself are a lawyer. Maybe you can uh, outline exactly, you know, what, how this is going to proceed, and what are the chances of it actually getting a result, and can they realistically? I mean, is it more than just a statement? Is it something that's actually going to have, you know, an impact on Israel and bring uh, a ceasage to this, uh, like, real end to the the genocide in question? Well, genocide uh, is defined by Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, and effectively um, what is required to be shown is that uh, the accused, in this case Israel, has an intent to destroy uh, all or part of 
the population of an ethnic or national group. And for that purpose uh, is committing or intends to commit certain inhumane acts. Uh, and the Genocide Convention lists five examples. It's not an exhaustive list. It lists five examples. Israel is clearly doing four of those things, if not all five of them. It only has to do one of them to satisfy the definition of genocide. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them is killing members of the target group. They're obviously doing that in huge numbers in Gaza and also to a lesser extent in, in the West Bank. Another is depriving uh, the targeted population of the condition of, the, of the, 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 the essentials of life. Well, there's no question Israel has done that. They openly declared that they were imposing a total blockade on Gaza and then began to deprive the people of Gaza of food, water, fuel, and electricity. Uh, and this has put, you know, probably more than half the population on the brink of starvation. So they're clearly doing that. As for the first part, you know, uh, an intent to uh, commit, uh, to, to destroy all or part of the population, the jurisprudence is clear that it's not any part. It has to be at, at a minimum a substantial part. And when you look at the, you know, the proportion of the Palestinian population that that is stuck in Gaza and is at risk, it is unquestionably a substantial part of the Palestinian population. Unquestionably. We're talking about 2.3 million people here uh, out of a Palestinian population that's much less than 10 million people in historic Palestine. Uh, so uh, in terms of the intent to do this, to destroy a substantial part, well, you know, the South African brief has page after page of statements by Israeli officials from the president to the prime minister, to the defense minister, to the minister of finance, to the minister of heritage, to members of the governing party in the Israeli Knesset that clearly express a desire, a goal, objective of destroying Gaza and, and, and making the place entirely unlivable. Uh, they're, they're clearly trying to drive uh, all or substantially all of the population of Gaza out of the territory, out of this occupied Palestinian territory, and they're pre prepared to kill untold numbers of people in order to achieve that goal if they won't go willingly. So I think the evidence is absolutely there, and it's very important to understand. I don't think most people, uh, non-lawyers, have, have appreciated this, that tomorrow, the hearing's happening tomorrow and Friday uh, at 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Uh, Netherlands time. This is happening at The Hague. Uh, what the court is going to be asked to do tomorrow is to give provisional relief. So the court is not being asked at this stage of the proceeding to make a definitive determination that Israel is committing, is committing or is about to commit genocide. Uh, for the purposes of the provisional relief, because remember, the Genocide Convention doesn't just uh, make genocide a crime and define what genocide is. It also, in Article 1, says that the signatories, which include Israel, uh, have an obligation to prevent genocide. So obviously, if the if the courts always waited for the genocide to be completed before they acted, then Article 1 would be meaningless. So what do you have to do to get a court to act under Article 1? All you have to show is that it's plausible that the accused is committing genocide or is about to commit genocide. You don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that is in fact what happened, what is happening. So the burden on South Africa at this stage is relatively low. It's basically a balance of probabilities. Uh, and that's a much easier burden for them to meet than a proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so the if they if they persuade the court of this, the, the provisional measures they've requested include an order uh, uh, that Israel stop its attacks on Gaza, 
an order that Israel preserve evidence of potential war crimes and crimes against humanity, an order that Israel ensure the delivery of adequate humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza. Uh, and there were several other forms of provisional relief. Uh, the bottom line here, given the, I've read the brief, Michael, I've read all 84 pages. It's an, it's a stupendously well-written and well-documented brief. I don't say that simply because I support the human rights of the Palestinian people. That's my judgment as a lawyer. I was very impressed with the quality of that brief. Uh, and if they are acting in accordance with the law, these 15 judges of the ICJ will, without any hesitation, give South Africa all or substantially all of the provisional relief it is requested. The one risk is political pressure. Uh, we know that the United States and Israel and Israel's other Western allies are perfectly capable of finding various ways to apply pressure on the judges of any court, not just the ICJ. They've, they've done this with the uh, International Criminal Court. Uh, you know, to uh, uh, pervert the course of justice. They'll pressure them into perverting the course of justice. Personally, I think that there is a better than 50% chance that because the evidence is so overwhelming that they will rule in South Africa's favor, even with all the political pressure. Uh, and if, as I say, if they were just applying the law impartially without any political pressure from any party, I don't think there would be any hesitation at all to give this relief to South Africa. Dimitri Lascaris, a lawyer, activist, and journalist, and he spoke to us from Montreal. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. There are still doubts among some critics that the world court will vote the way South Africa wants it to vote. We have a couple of such critics with me now, and they've authored an article which was just published entitled South Africa's Charges of Genocide Against Israel. The World Court Judges Vote is Political, Not Legal. Neither Evidence Nor Law, the Genocide Convention, will convict Israel. Uh, Paul Larudi is a retired academic and current administrator of a nonprofit human rights and humanitarian aid organization. His co-author, Calvin Larity, is a high school student who assisted with the research in this paper. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, your essential argument is that the role of the jurists sitting at the ICJ or the World Court is political, not legal, but it's formatted as a legal body. In ordinary legal law, there are usually instruments that exclude individuals from serving on juries or, or as judges based on past connections, betraying previous bias and so on. I, I've been through a process like that myself. Are you saying then that there's no distinction like that before individuals are placed on the roster of, of highly placed jurists to decide epic court decisions? I mean, explain that if you could. No, I mean, it's it's the uh, <clears throat> difference between what is um, formal and um, what is public and what happens behind the scenes. Uh, the, the They want the best jurists. They want the, those who have the cleanest record and all that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that uh, influence won't be peddled behind the scenes. And that's invariably the case. I mean, 
uh, prominent people in international organizations uh, have been threatened directly. John Bolton uh, threatened the director of the uh, OPCW, the organization for the the prohibition of chemical weapons. Uh, for example, he, he he said to Jose Bustani one time, uh, I know where your children go to school. So these ICJ court decisions, any court decision is ultimately tainted from the get-go, right? Yes. I mean, most people who know what's going on already know that this is it. Look at the evaluations that have been made. The evaluations that, for example, um, uh, my colleague uh, Calvin has put together, those are all those all describe what the countries uh, from which the judges are appointed. It, it describes what the interests of the countries are, are and how they're, uh, they are likely to vote on the basis of the interests of their countries, not on the facts of the case. Calvin, you went through all the judges, uh, some of them such as the U.S. jurist Joan Donahue, uh, you could predict with certainty how they were going to vote. Others could vote either way. What exactly was the source of these statistics of, of probable outcomes? Well, it's very simple. I just looked at the policies and the rhetorics of the states to which they come from. Because if we're being frank here, these judges are propped up by their respective countries then they're elected in the General Assembly and Security Council. So realistically, this is political. Who has the most political influence? And the United States is going to be the one that props up the most judges because they have a vote in the Security Council and they have a vote in the General Assembly. And frankly, they have a lot of friends. So why wouldn't they choose someone who they could have influence over? It's just unrealistic to think that the, uh, the judge from the United States is going to say, yes, Israel is committing genocide. I just couldn't see it happen. So like the Japanese, Australian and German jurists would not vote yes to a genocide decision based on the way the politics would have affected the, the decision for their countries. I mean, if, if they were independent minded, they would never have been selected in the first place. Right. Exactly. OK. Um, the people voting are themselves vetted. I mean, they, they're selected by the respective country and then selected for approval by the UN, as I understand it. Explain how countries like the United States could jury rig the democratic votes that way so the people making the decision in court are doing it based on politics and not so much what conclusions they, they come to drawn from the proceedings. Well, firstly, we'd have to trust that the UN is unbiased. And based on their track record, I don't think we could say that. I think that the biggest powers in our world have the most influence. They're going to influence who's in the UN, the kind of decisions they're going to make. They're going to put political pressure on other countries to elect the people they want. Well, I, I, and as I understand it, I mean, and you write in the article, uh, you both write in the article, um, you have the two, you have the UN General Assembly and you also have the UN Security Council and, and the UN Security Council, they, like, I guess there's a bit of a, 
a, a shift in the sense that there's uh, more votes at the security count. Well, basically, you have individuals who can vote in both in the General Assembly and a second time in the Security Council. Correct. Well, you have you have countries that that have uh, uh, two votes because they're both on the Security Council and in the General Assembly. That's not a major factor because you have 153 countries in the the UN, um, and so there are lots of votes. Uh, the the question of influence over countries and threats and uh, bribes and uh, all sorts of things uh, that go on behind the scenes. Though those are the things that mostly. Uh, have to do with the election of judges and for at least some of the decisions. I mean, there are decisions that uh, can be made by the world court that that, that are not, um, uh, that a lot of the countries are not concerned about, that the powerful countries, uh, you know, don't feel a, a need to influence uh, anyone. But this is not one of them. This is this is a very important decision and they will use whatever influence they have especially the united states well i'm wondering then if, if is there any good that could come out of this process i mean the the, the fact that it's as it say you said it's a a window dressing but uh, i mean even if it's not as straightforward a legal process as we thought it was well um I, it it may result in a judgment against Israel. It's just that the the judges will uh, will judge against Israel on the basis of what they consider their own interests mainly. Uh, and uh, the United States doesn't have, uh, everyone in their pocket, but the uh, the ones who aren't in their pocket are in somebody else's pocket. Sometimes their own pocket. Uh, so that's what that's what's going to be the outcome. It does. It's not a foregone conclusion that there will uh, will be, um, you know, that uh, that a no vote on on. Uh, um on judging against israel mm. it's so it's possible well gentlemen i want to really thank you for your insights i mean i know i'm not necessarily an expert on international uh, criminal courts like this but we'll we'll watch carefully over the next few days at, at the outcome of the genocide case and uh, we'll see where it goes from there thank you okay thank you michael thank you We've been speaking to Paul Larrady and Calvin Larrady, uh, co-authors of a recent article in Global Research regarding South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. The following interview will contain very coarse and disturbing subject matter. Listener discretion is strongly advised before proceeding further. We're now joined by Robert Inlakesh. He's a, a political analyst, journalist, and documentary filmmaker. He's reported from and lived in the occupied Palestinian territories and hosts the show Palestine Files. I, I should also say that you are not just a journalist 
who has been covering the area since long before October 7th. You married a, a Gaza citizen and have lost over 120 members of your extended family. So I grieve with you over your loss and, and over the loss of numerous other people since the 7th of October. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it's something that's uh, for me, having uh, obviously extended family, uh, friends, uh, good friends and, and uh, colleagues in the Gaza Strip. It's uh, obviously, yeah, something that's uh, beyond just a news item. Since we last spoke, I think you've reevaluated the, the count of the number of Israelis killed on October 7th. And, and you came to the conclusion the casualty count among citizens, civilian people, was not as high as the initial estimate. I mean, there was, uh, I know that uh, the, the IDF had, had been responsible for shooting Israelis themselves. Uh, what is the count you have come to at this point? And, and how does that influence our estimate overall of this as a, a terrorist attack versus, uh, you know, I suppose a resistance against oppression. Well, the official number um, for October 7 of uh, non-combatants on the Israeli side is uh, a little under uh, 700 Israelis, roughly. Um, however, uh, that number does not take into account uh, Israelis who are considered as civilians but did grab firearms and engaged in clashes with Palestinian uh, armed groups and individuals. Uh, so how accurate that figure is as well, also uh, perhaps that needs uh, reevaluating too. Um, how many of those were killed uh, by the Israeli military itself? That is, uh, again, unclear. Uh, is it half? Is it more than half? Is it less than half? Uh, we don't exactly know. Uh, in some cases, we could give rough estimates as to how many they killed. Uh, however, I would refrain from going into such detail. I think that's something that would have to be concluded in a more thorough investigation. Um, and uh, yeah, we'd have to uh, wait for uh, more facts to come out before uh, any conclusive uh, uh, evidence uh, uh is is claimed um and, and any figures are claimed i mean the israelis are the ones uh the israeli media and the western corporate media are the ones making uh these uh great and grand claims about things that uh they say happened most of which can be proven did not happen on october 7 uh so i i don't want to get into uh alleging things did occur uh when i don't have evidence for them because then that would be sort of making me as bad as them in terms of uh, trying to claim that I know something uh, more than I have evidence for. Maybe give give a, a few examples of what you yourself have heard about people who have escaped Gaza, what they've been through, through the, the, the constant air assaults. How, how does it, from your perspective, how does it compare to, to other attacks by Israel that they've experienced in the last decade? I think this uh, specific attack, um, this war, is like no other that we've seen in human history. I think it's a unique crime. I don't think that there's ever been anything like this that's been done to any population that I can think of. 
Um, it's not to say it's worse than uh, other crimes and genocides which were committed in human history, uh, but it's most certainly a unique crime committed in human history. Um, the death toll is around 30,000. Uh, the injured is around 60,000. Um, but of course, these statistics are uh, just what we have available to us at the moment. This will not include people who are starving to death now, who are, are getting uh, many types of diseases. Um, and, you know, when a population is starving to death, um, which is what's being done to Palestinians in Gaza and various areas of the Gaza Strip, when they are not allowed medical aid, humanitarian aid in uh, to various areas. Uh, when, for instance, I've heard various reports of people being sexually assaulted, tortured in detention camps, which are sort of these ad hoc uh, uh, camps set up uh, near the beach where barbed wire fence is placed and people are taken, civilians are taken, uh, beaten badly, um, and are then uh, stripped and, and made to sit there in the dirt. People were beaten so badly that they had heart attacks. Uh, in one case, uh, an ambulance driver who was released, uh, he was uh, the only one in the group that they ended up releasing uh, that could walk at the end of it. The rest of them had been beaten so badly uh, that uh, they couldn't walk. Um, you have the Israeli soldiers sniping Palestinians, throwing pregnant women off roofs, uh, shooting men in front of their wives and children, and then pushing them into rooms and throwing grenades in those rooms with women and children in them. Uh, and then obviously you have the airstrikes and uh, I just I give this comparison all the time. Uh, ISIS during the first two years of its insurgency in Iraq, which were considered the worst uh, for civilian deaths that they inflicted. The United Nations said that they killed uh, this is ISIS in Iraq in two years. They killed 18,800 civilians. Israel in roughly three months has killed 30,000 in the Gaza Strip. I'll give another statistic uh, from ISIS because uh, the Israelis like to use ISIS to try and compare Hamas to ISIS. So in Syria, the United Nations says that between 2013 and 2023, ISIS killed just over 5,000 civilians, in total civilians, in Syria. You look at what Israel has done just with the child death toll in Gaza, you're looking over 11,000 children. So Israel, in a much smaller amount of time, has killed a lot more people, has a much worse kill ratio than ISIS. Um, if what they're doing is not genocide, uh, we have heard the genocidal intent of them, of their soldiers. We know what their conduct is. We know the way they're treating people. We know the way they're talking about the Palestinian people. If this is not genocide, uh, nothing is genocide. Genocide doesn't mean by the way to kill every single one of them uh, or else then we could make ridiculous claims that because not all Jewish people were killed in World War II, oh, that doesn't constitute a genocide. I mean, these are ridiculous claims, absolutely ridiculous claims in whole or in part if there's an attempt to eliminate uh, a, 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 an ethnic group, a racial group or category 
uh, or a religious group, I believe as well, uh, that can be const- uh, that can constitute genocide, um, and that that is the case that's being made right now uh, by South Africa and is being supported uh, by over eleven nations, I believe, uh, around the world. Uh, so that's uh, that's what's happening in the Gaza Strip. Man, that's awful. Um... And, and it's important to note the number of journalists who have been killed. I mean, is there evidence that you know of that these deaths are not collateral damage, as they say, that they are, in fact, targeting journalists? Well, I know some individuals who were um, uh, targeted along with uh, their colleagues. Um, and, and it's very clear. I mean, the journalists are clearly marked. They're impressed best. They're murdered in areas where they're reporting from, they're murdered in their homes, they're murdered in their cars. Uh, Israel is not targeting um, Hamas fighters with these airstrikes. And uh, you know how I know that uh, right now, uh, these journalists that they're murdering and they're targeting with precision airstrikes as well. Um, How I know that they're not uh, mistaking them for Hamas uh, because they're on the ground fighting against Hamas and Hamas are popping out the tunnels uh, and killing their soldiers uh, on a daily basis and uh, basically inflicting a massive military defeat on their troops who are basically cowering away in fear and running away from different areas. Um, and so Hamas, they know where Hamas is. Hamas are on the battlefield, um, but their troops are too cowardly to engage them and get out of their uh, military vehicles. Um, they're trying to take them out with drones there, but it doesn't work. Uh, and here's the thing. They know they haven't killed a significant portion of uh, the members of Hamas. They also know that Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is the second uh, strongest Palestinian armed group, which has actually a larger number of fighters, as a lot of people don't know this, um, that hasn't been um, significantly um, affected militarily, and neither have groups like the PFLP's Abu Ali Mustafa brigades um, and other uh, groups. You've got the Mujahideen brigades, the Salahuddin brigades, uh, and many others. Um, they haven't been defeated. Israel hasn't defeated any of these. Uh, there's around a dozen Palestinian armed groups they haven't defeated them. Uh, we know that they haven't killed uh, military leaders. Uh, for most of them, they haven't uh, killed a significant portion of uh, any of the military leadership. They haven't taken out a significant amount of the tunnel systems, yet they've displaced over 85% of the Gaza Strip. Um, and most people are, are homeless there. Uh, the majority of them are food insecure. Uh, I believe the UN statistics is of, uh, says that of those who are suffering uh, severe uh, f- food uh, insecurity uh, in the world. 80% of them are in Gaza. Um, they've blocked all food or water or medical aid, electricity, fuel, um, and, and to the civilian population. They're targeting the civilian population. Um, but there's, there can be no doubt about it. Um, the munitions they use, the way they strike, it's very obvious. It's been uh, copiously documented. Um, and, and I think anyone who's trying to make the argument that Israel is targeting Hamas in these strikes, which are killing these journalists, I mean, uh, you can look to the case of Lebanon. There's no Hamas there. They're targeting in Lebanon when they killed, for instance, two journalists from 
Al-Mayadeen network in an open area or uh, a Reuters journalist, along with injuring a number of his colleagues uh, at, back in October, um, they murder journalists because journalists are considered as a combatant to them. And they're trying to make those arguments actively now. Well, uh, here in Canada, as talks into the genocide case at the World Court is happening, uh, there was coverage in the news, uh, I just saw it, uh, of escalating hate crimes and anti-Semitic activity growing in Canada. I mean, I've been to a few of these demonstrations. I, I didn't see any anti-Semitism. And in fact, Jews spoke at these events. But in Toronto, they're going to restrict protests related to Israel on a bridge in a community where there are a lot of Jews. Okay, And uh, speaking as someone who's, you, you speaking as somebody who's, um, lost a hundred family members in Gaza. What do you say to this response that, that uh, you can only go in certain locations to ex exercise your right of free speech and, and the media's apparent preoccupation with anti-Semitic activity? I mean, I, I, I'm not talking about people holding up signs saying, kill the Jews, okay? And I'm not, I don't condemn that for a second. I'm sure you don't either. But here we're talking about, you know, protesting the genocide uh, or anything against Israel, that's that 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 has to be restricted. Well, what what do you say to that? Um, I, I think it's a ridiculous conflation of anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Israel activity. Israel is committing a genocide. Israel is an apartheid regime. Um, Israel is committing war crimes, and people who are against apartheid, genocide, and war crimes are people who are on the streets and they're protesting in favor of Palestinian human rights. I mean, it's very clear. Um, is there a rise in anti-Semitic uh, activity, certainly online? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't try and dispute that. I mean, uh, there there is that. Um, are these protests filled with anti-Semites who want to kill Jewish people? Uh, like you rightly noted, uh, I've traveled around the world and I've been covering uh, what's been going on in Palestine for over a decade. Um Every single country I go to, city I go to, there are Jewish people normally leading uh, the demonstrations um, for Palestinian human rights. Um, and, and to try and claim this is about anti-Semitism is just disingenuous nonsense. And every single time Israel continues on in its murderous and barbaric way in Gaza, and this is the most murderous and barbaric attack on Gaza that we've seen uh, yet, uh, they always come out with this anti-Semitism card and trying to twist words and twist the meaning of what people are saying, like from the river to the sea, which is something they even say and is in the Likud Charter. Um, they actively lie about what Hamas thinks as well in, in Gaza and what Palestinians think in general, what the parties think in general. They lie about what the protesters over here think. They lie to say that they're supporting Hamas even. Uh, which is clearly not true. People are not going out there. Maybe some of them do support Hamas, uh, but uh, uh, nobody's out there with a Hamas sign. Nobody's uh, the bulk of people. Okay, maybe you've got one person in that protest who's an anti-Semite. Oh wow, uh, maybe you also in uh, you know in a Drake concert. There's someone there that doesn't like Jews too. Um, uh, sh should we shut down Drake concerts because maybe there's an anti-Semite that bought a ticket to go see him? Uh, I, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. And, and these things don't have anything to do with each other. People who are, uh, oppose war crimes, genocide and apartheid 
are not anti-Semites. Uh, people who oppose Jewish people for being Jewish are anti-Semites. That's very clear. Um, and we're talking about a privileged Western population who support genocide and support apartheid and support war crimes, who are crying that people are not supporting their genocide, war crimes and apartheid. Um, that's what you're seeing. And there's a number of groups, lobby organizations um, and powerful business people uh, that back these efforts um, and that also pretend uh, that uh, it's somehow a call for the genocide of Jewish people or it's anti-Semitism to oppose an actual genocide, not a hypothetical genocide, an actual genocide which is going on, which is being carried out by the people they support. Uh, so, I mean, it's everything is just inverted and flipped on its head. Um, and, and it's just utterly ridiculous. And any sane person that knows anything about the issue knows that uh, this is not about anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, Israel creates more anti-Semitism because it goes around calling itself the Jewish state. And then it has very vocal Jewish supporters over in uh, countries around the world and specifically in places like uh, you know, Canada, like you know, to the United States, Britain, Germany, France, etc. And then people look at that and they go, oh, look, all Jews support war crimes. Um, and that's just not correct. But Israel being, you know, the genocidal apartheid regime that it is um, claiming to be representing all Jews, that's the stain on that. I think Israel is the most anti-Semitic uh, it causes the most anti-Semitism in the world. And it is the most anti-Semitic country or entity on, on the planet in of itself. Uh, it is anti-Semitic. It says that all Jews belong to it. All Jews are affiliated with apartheid, war crimes and genocide. And that's a disgusting claim to make about Jewish people who have nothing to do with it. Uh, so Israel's the anti-Semite. Uh, Pro-Israel supporters are the ones pushing anti-Semitism. And if you want to ban anyone, ban them. But I don't see pro-Palestinian people trying to ban them from protesting. Um, they just don't agree with them. And okay. that's sort of the rational way to go about it. Yeah, I wish I had more time. Robert, thank you for appearing on my program again and uh, and for your work. Thanks a lot and, and take care. Thank you. Robert Inglakesh is a political analyst, journalist and documentary filmmaker based in London. Uh, we reached him recently in Calgary. That's it for our show this week. Next week, we'll be exploring the role of China in this and other debacles on the world stage. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.